Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. Once again, I'm joined by my glamorous co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Oh, um, things have been okay. Um, not too much to report this week. Um, I'm looking forward to the weekend. I've got a, another tattoo booked in, so that will be tattoo Ooh. number six. What have so, you got? Um, can, you, can you give us a, a, a sneak peek into what you may be adorning your um, body? Well, not, a, not would, would, well, you may, maybe you want to show us, but can you describe it at least? Yeah, well, it's it's nowhere intimate. So it's a safe, it's on my arm. So um, yeah, upper arm, it's going to be like this abstract horse's head with flowers and um, just sorted out the design today. So it's all booked in for Saturday. Yeah, I, I love my tattoos and piercings and yeah, body modifications in general. So I think it kind of fits in with the social worker. Um I know some careers you've got to be more careful about tattoos and piercings and and how you present yourself, but I feel I feel safe in social work to be able to express myself. So yeah, um, that's that's probably my biggest news of the week. Will it be done in one session or is it like a multiple yeah, yeah, session um, tattooing? About three hours, they said. So um, yeah, I can do that in, in one sitting. I can bear that pain for that long. I, I look yeah. forward to seeing the finished product. I will share a picture with you all. Anyway, how have you been? Um, yeah, I, I had an, I had a nice, relaxing weekend. I was working away, um, so I uh, played word games. I uh, watched a, a movie called The Gentleman, which was really good, a Guy Ritchie movie. It's a couple of years old, but I, uh, I watched that over a couple of sessions. I, I kept getting distracted. I don't know about you, Tilly, but... I find it difficult to watch full films. I think I watched that in three three sittings. I kept getting distracted. I bought a Christmas jumper and I cooked some healthy, clean paleo food for my... I'm on a paleo diet at the moment. I have been for a long time, actually. Well, you know, Tilly, you know, when, when we've met, you know you know how awkward my eating habits are. So, so you, awkward. You know, <laughs> you know how to well. No wheat, no dairy, no caffeine no sugar um i'm boring myself just talking about this but yes that was my weekend and I, and I sat in front of a cozy fire i was working away and i'm able to um quite grateful for my independent social work because i'm able to uh, book my own accommodation so i look for um cheap uh, accommodation in cozy rural airbnbs because it's about similar price to what you get for a hotel but by getting an airbnb i'm able to cook for myself and have a bit of time to myself so it, it was an it was a nice relaxing weekend, as relaxing as a, a weekend of work can possibly be. I did also finish a book, which brings us on to the topic of today's show. I, I finished a book called "The Ten Regrets of the Dying" by an author called Georgina Scull, and it moved me. It moved me like many books do not. It wasn't the Ten Regrets of the Dying; it was re- Regrets of the Dying, just to clarify. So this book, Regrets of the Dying, it, it essentially is that it does, as it says on the cover, you can judge this book by its cover because it, it is a book focused on the regrets of the dying. And it interviews scores of people. And the criteria that the author, Georgina School had for interviewing people was people who were either 70 and beyond and therefore 
latter stages of life and contemplate that the end may come are people with a, a, a terminal illness. And uh, the book, it, it was a bittersweet book. It both depressed me and empowered me at the same time. And I thought, Tilly, that I would also make you depressed and empowered at the same time. So I, I gifted you a copy of this audiobook, didn't I, last week? You did, and you gave me quite a tight deadline, really, a few days to get through yes. the audiobook. Um, uh, yeah, but it, I managed it. I did do it. Um, and as you said, it was depressing and uplifting at the same time. And I wasn't quite expecting how sad it was going to be. I did have a bit of a tear in my eye at some point, but um, no, I liked it. Uh, it was Good. it was very powerful. Tilly, you, you're making me out to be a hard taskmaster here with this idea that it was crunch time. <laughs> I, think, I think you got four days. I think I gave you four days, four days, which, yeah, there's a lot actually. That's, you had to listen to one and a half hours a day. That was your allotted time. Yeah, that is quite a lot. I mean, I'm a quicker it's, with a physical book, although I, I do actually have to say I prefer audio books. Mm. And that does make me the bookworm inside me shudder because I also do like reading physical books. But I don't get much time to sit down and just go through a book. Um, or if I do, it cuts into my sleep time because I'll read at night and then I won't put the book down. But with an audio book, you can listen to in the car when you're cooking, just yeah. in between when you're getting ready. So I do I do like an audio book, um, but it was quite a lot to get through. Um, I would have got through a physical book in a bit quicker time, but I, I enjoyed it. So it wasn't didn't feel like work. Good stuff. I, I, I am glad that I haven't been too harsh on you. Um, I listen to a lot of audiobooks as well, simply because, you know, my, my commuting time I can spend, I mean, I spent four hours in the car today alone, just traveling to an assessment session and back. Uh, yeah, most weeks I'll probably spend close to 10, 12, sometimes 15 hours in the car. So I usually get through at least one audiobook a week. And I tend to have an audiobook and a physical book, usually on the Kindle, to be honest. I like, I like my Kindle on the go at any one time. Anyway, back on point. I read this book, Regrets of the Dying, and it gave me significant pause for thought. There were many things I was considering discussing about this book on the podcast, but I thought perhaps the most salient point in the whole book was in the final chapter where the author, Georgina, she looks for the common themes and all the people now and all the people that she spoke to, she kind of ties it around one key regret, doesn't she, Billy? But Within that, there's obviously multiple things. So what, what Georgina Skull has done in the, in the final chapter, she's broken it down into the 10 regrets of the dying. So there's 10 common themes that she saw. And in your line of work, particularly more than mine and adults, um, you're faced with death and people passing on and, and getting ready uh, for the final journey. You're faced with that. On a regular basis, aren't you, Tilly? All the time. Mm. I mean, it's the saddest part of the job that I do. Um, I've come across many people that are in a, a, a terrible state just before their dying moments mm. where they're regretting their life, they're confessing things. Did you know that so many people in care homes end up committing 
um, confessing that they've committed murder or some sort of heinous act. Apparently it's really common and, and it, it alarms a lot of care staff because they're not expecting it. But in their in people's final moments and when the filters go, if, if they've got something like dementia, then a lot of people do actually out. confess to, to murder. But anyway, um, yes, that's not the most common thing that I come across, fortunately. Um, but there are a lot of people that have different regrets in their life and a lot of people are very scared of dying mm. and that's something that university doesn't prepare you how to deal with that because there's that's like what do you say to someone that they're, they're not your loved one they're not someone that you have any connection with other than in a professional relationship sometimes you've just met this person yeah. and they might be confessing their deepest darkest secrets to you and expressing their fear about dying and what do you say and there is no right answer about what to say or how to comfort someone but everything's not to do um but you just kind of have to listen and be there and you never know what someone's going to say to you um so yeah that's a it's a common common part of the job it's interesting you say that because uh, my dad passed away two years and one day ago it was his uh the anniversary of his passing yesterday and he told me two things that the, the two key things that he told me um it, it was in the time of covid he, he died on the 22nd of november 2020 I only really got to see him once in hospital because of the COVID rules, which is why it, it infuriated me and, and, and it upsets me when our government and all sorts of people who were making these rules were totally flouting them. And my dad died alone because of that. Now, he told me two things. One, obviously, it's inappropriate for me to share, but he, he told me a secret about my mother. And I, I kind of get why he told me that, but equally, I kind of, on the same hand, kind of wish that he hadn't because it doesn't really change anything in my life. It's like knowledge that I've now got to carry that isn't really relevant to my life and my relationship with my mother. Um, my mum doesn't listen to the podcast, luckily, so she's not going to find out that my dad told me that. If she does, mother, we'll arrange a chat next week. Um, the second thing that he told me uh, was that he loved me. And I remember my dad telling me that he loved me when I was younger and then you know, I was into my early teens, but then it kind of doesn't become cool to tell your teenage son when you're like a manly, rough country man that you love him. So those were two things that my dad told me and he didn't express any regrets really. Um, he seemed, you know, he was in his mid to late eighties. He seemed relatively content. So it's interesting what you say there about, you know, those things coming out because yes, that secret that he shared about my mother is something that he literally kept with him to his deathbed, which is a saying people have, but that that is true. Back to the book then. I could talk about this book for a long time. Uh, I think it's amazing. We are going to try and get Georgina School on the podcast in future. I haven't approached her yet, but we will. Georgina, I might be linking you into this podcast as well. So if you listen at this point, um, please come on the show in future. I'm going to go through each of those 10 regrets one by one. Tilly, I just want us to spend a little bit of time reflecting on them. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, I think that's a good plan for this podcast. Let's do that. Now, these aren't in any particular order, guys. They're, they're just, you know, 10 of the common themes that came out of this book, um, the 10 common regrets of the dying. The first regret and the first theme that was found is that 
people regretted living in the future. People in their latter stages of life and you know, facing death regretted how much of their earlier lives they had spent living in the future and not appreciating the here and now and always looking towards some further goal down the line. Kind of reminds me of what John Lennon said, which is life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Do you see that theme, Tilly, whether it's something you see in your clients you work with or something you see in your own life? Do you see that regret that people do spend too much time living in the future? Massively. It, it hugely made me reflect on my own life because I'm someone that I do like planning for the future. Or do I like doing it? No, but I do it. Um, I'm always thinking ahead. Um, and it's really hard to live in the moment because there is part of us that needs to plan for the future and make sure that we're on some sort of the right path and trying to make the most out of life. But whilst we're doing that, we forget to live in the moment. So it did really touch nerve, this one, because um, it, it is something that I am very guilty of doing. And made it made me pause and think, actually, I need to stop planning so much and just go with the flow a little bit more i used to be more guilty of it than i am now um, when i was a a younger man I, I was incredibly lazy and i used to always convince myself that my laziness and procrastination was okay because future me would pay for it and i don't know if you can understand this Teddy, because it seems bizarre when i think back but i always had this idea and my teenage years and early to mid-20s that I can do what I want now because at some point in future I'll be mature and I'll kind of make up so I almost felt like I was cashing checks for my future self to pay and I vividly remember that I vividly remember that mentality that I had you know telling myself well you know Present Vince can do what he likes and future Vince will have to deal with it. And now I'm completely the opposite. Now I have this mentality that I'm my own future friend. So now I do things in the here and now, deferred gratification is the specific term, that will benefit me in future, those incremental small changes, such as, like we were talking about earlier, my very healthy, very clean diet. That That's an example of it. Do you think that's changed since you've had children? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, that, that has been a motivator. It started to change before I'd had children and it's got better even after I've had children. There's been improvements, but the difference is when you have children is you can no longer live life solely on your own terms. You have to live it on their routines and their terms, and you have to prioritise them, which, of course, in my line of work is often where social workers will criticise the people we support who are not doing that. Thankfully, I'm in a position you know, in my life where I am able to prioritise my children. And because past Vince had lots of fun, present Vince isn't so bothered, isn't so bothered about having quiet evenings spent talking about the 10 regrets of the dying rather than regretting what he got up to the night before. So, uh, but I do see it a lot in people. I, I do see it a lot in people. And I obviously 
saw that in myself. Our next um, common regret of the dying is people not being honest about what they want in life. People who go through life not daring to express their own views, wishes, and feelings, not daring to go out there and, and seize what they want in life, and particularly being held back and restricted by living their life by the expectations of others. Similar question the last time, Tilly. Does that ring a bell with you personally? And do you see that professionally in your line of work? So I think this is where the the generations coming through now are making a huge difference. I think Generation Z and Generation Alpha that are, are coming through are much more focused than previous generations on prior, uh, prioritising their own health and well-being. We've seen it with things like the quiet quitting trends, where people are saying, I'm not going to work more than what I'm contracted to do. Um, we've seen more people making choices about whether they start a family or not, whether they have relationships or not, um, what careers or not that they have. I think we've seen a lot more loosening of the societal boundaries compared to, to previous generations where it's kind of been expected that you uh, you marry, you, you have a family and you settle down, you, you work, then you retire. And it, it's a very strict or constricting view of the world. So I think this regret might almost fizzle out as the current generations move through and get older. Do you think that's particularly relevant to women? Yes, massively. Yeah. yeah. And I think I, as a, well, I, I, I fall in the millennial category, but um, I think it's much more acceptable from my generation and younger to say, actually, I don't want children. As I've said on, on this podcast many times before, I've, I, actively don't want children I'm not particularly interested in having relationships or getting married um I'm quite happy to prioritize myself and my friends and and my family rather than the society's previous expectations of of what they would have for for someone in my position Um, so I think that's much more freeing um, and I'm really pleased that we've moved to that direction do you think there is a a double-edged for that sword, though, in the fact that having too much choice and having too much freedom can sometimes be a bad thing. I think it, it, it can be. But I've, I've met many, many people, older people that I work with, who have said to me that they regret having children and having families, getting married, they chose the wrong person, they expected to live this almost like the American dream happy family Mm. life and then realize that life isn't like that and yes some people are really fortunate and they find their soulmates and they have they start a family and it's the best thing that they could possibly ever want but then that isn't everyone's reality and it's okay to choose something different for yourself Um, so uh, not all children or adult children are going to look after their parents in their older age and that's that's where you step in Tilly and that's where you you step in 
when you have two angry adult children demanding that you take care of their elderly and frail parent. Yep, that, that keeps me in a job. There, there's your job in a nutshell. Now, what you just said um, 30 seconds ago ties into the third most common regret of the dying, and that is remember that what you want might change, and that's okay. And this regret is born out of the idea that you can make decisions earlier in your life, such as what you were just talking about there, whether to have children, whether to get married, who to get married to and have children with. And that decision at that point in your life, when you were 20, 30, 40, any age, may have been entirely appropriate. But dying people regret not admitting that what they once wanted was no longer what they wanted, and they regret not giving up and starting afresh. Does that chime with your experience? Yeah, it does. And I think there's a, there's a lot of people out there that have had very, been, well, been stuck in situations that they didn't want to be in and didn't have a way out. Um, or, or they felt that societal pressures, whether that was family pressures, money pressures, or wanting to stay together as a family, that was their only option. Um, and I, again, I think that is loosening as these younger generations then become the older generation. I think we've, we've accepted that things like divorce is okay. It's not a taboo subject anymore. Isn't it like 50% in marriages now end in divorce? Um, but I think, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a common thing that I come across in my day-to-day job. Do you think that, that rings true to you as well? Yes, um, it's the, I use the term sunk cost dilemma to describe this. It's most often sort of used in a business sense, but essentially it implies that if we've committed a lot of time, money, effort in this context that we've been discussing years of our life to a certain something, a certain person, a certain career, a certain family, a certain way of life, a certain friendship group, whatever you've, you've spent a long time and a lot of effort, and potentially a lot of money working on, we can become incredibly emotionally attached to the effort we've put in and not necessarily the results. So we think, well, you know, I've, I've spent 20 years, 30 years with this person I've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort with them. And even though it's not good for me, and even though I would like to change my mind, and even though I would like to be with someone else or do something else, I am tied to the effort that the past me has made. And that's why people stick, because they've committed so much, they feel that they are wedded, sometimes literally, to that situation based on everything that's come before it. So they're not making an objective decision based upon what would make them happy and what would be better for them than here and now. They're making a subjective decision based on the weight of expectation borne by all the previous years. And we see that in social work so much, don't we? Where people have invested so much time, money, effort into Mm -hmm. their social work training. They start out and then they realise that the career is not for them. 
and then they end up getting stuck in it um, because they can't take they don't want to invest new time into retraining to do something else or maybe they can't take the pay cut that um, that comes with that and people get tied into being miserable and well, tell you, how, how, how many people it's within all <laughs> it's in all careers but but yeah it, it's common how many people do you know that are hanging on in a job they hate for the mortgage for their uh, pension should i say so many so yeah. many and isn't that so tragic that our jobs as much as we want to say that, that social work is a vocation and we've committed to it ultimately it is just a job and it it pays us to, so that we can live our life outside of work but too many people commit too much of themselves and think work is the only thing in their life our fourth common regret is Remember, you can't always be in control. And this comes from people regretting that they always tried to control everything. They always tried to make sure their life was going in a certain direction and they were trying their hardest to control things around them. And potentially if things couldn't be controllable, they would give up on them or they would spend a great deal of time and effort trying to control other people that were beyond their control. Do you um, ever struggle with not being in control of things? Do you ever feel like you have to be in control of things or is it easy come, easy go for yourself, Tilly? Um, I'm fairly easy come, easy go. But um, what I love using as a tool, um, as a manager, actually, is the control um dartboard i don't know if you've come across this but it's um it's like it's set up like a dartboard so there's three circles within it so there's the the center point the bullseye where you the things that you can control that are in well that are directly controlled by you and you need to focus all your time and effort in those things that you can control then moving out, there's the circle of influence. Mm. So you can have some control over those things but and, and influence them, but you're not going to be able to control it all. And then the wider circle where you have no control whatsoever in the outcome. So don't waste time and effort thinking about it, worrying about it. Um, and we use this quite a lot in supporting people through change mm. and, and in these bureaucracy type situations that come up within social care um, where there's just so many things that are out of our control and there's no point in wasting all that time and energy getting worked up about it or stressed about it if you can't control it or change it so uh, people in my team will frequently hear me say think about control dartboard are you, are you worrying about it is it something that you control yes no if it's not then put it in the bucket but it's it's refreshing for your team to have a manager like you because without naming names, Tilly, I bet both you and I could give many examples of managers we've both had in the past who significantly worry about things they can't control and their social workers have no power whatsoever to influence. Yep. And there's an article that I've written for this week's column that is going to talk just about that, about the toxic manager. So that's something for people to look forward to, or maybe not. 
how exciting this sneak peek. Um, I've got to be honest, this 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 is something I, I have struggled with in the past. And I've struggled with it in a, in a sort of specific area. Um, I found it difficult to understand why people wouldn't like me when I've done nothing wrong. And that that, not so much these days, but a few years gone by, that would used to really affect me. And, and I would be emotionally moved by other people's negative opinions of me, um, given obviously mainly related to, you know, social work and the, the things that I, I write about and, and having a relatively large platform in terms of, you know, my writing and podcasting, and social media presence and so on. And that used to be a big struggle for me. And about three years ago, about three years ago, I, I came across stoicism. I'd always heard the term people are stoic. And, you know, I thought that was kind of like, you know, just, just being manly was my sort of understanding of stoicism. I didn't really realize there was a whole philosophy to it. I just thought it was a, a word to describe people who were kind of unflappable and unmovable. And I started reading a lot about stoicism and, in particular, a modern-day Stoic, a guy called Ryan Holiday. I read all of his books, and I started reading other books, and I started joining forums, and I was using Stoic philosophy and training tools. And that, that really, really helped ground me in this understanding that literally only focus on what's in your control. And now I'm, I'm rarely, if ever, moved by anything that's outside of my control because I've learned through work and through educating myself that it is a fool's game indeed. Moving on to the fifth uh, common regret of the dying. Accept that everyone makes mistakes, even you, and say sorry. This regret comes from people who are facing death and have either beat themselves up throughout life about mistakes they've made or have failed to forgive other people who've wronged them and have never said sorry. What do you think about that, Tilly? Yeah, I think we can all be guilty of this one, can't we? (laughs) (laughs) How many mistakes do you make on a daily basis, let alone throughout a whole lifetime? Um, But it's what you do with them. And if you can learn from them and... As, as um, Georgina's girl says, move on, say sorry, and make amends. Then that's yeah. all any of us should be doing. And and I, and I think that's key for me is understanding that we're infallible, other people are infallible, and and moving on. Um, the sixth common regret is keep trying new things. So many, many people, and this was mostly actually linked to work, that a lot of people were so committed to work and so committed to the pursuit of financial gain. Often it wasn't for themselves, it was for the children and, and, and the partners to try and give them security that they didn't have. Most of the chapters in the book that focused on people working too hard I think all of those people came from difficult childhoods and there was this sense that they wanted to give their children the life that they hadn't had, but by striving to give their children the financial security they didn't have, they actually robbed their children 
of the parenting that the person who was striving had themselves. And it's a difficult dilemma. And I think one that any, any parent would, would yeah. find parallels with in their own decision-making. So people regretted not trying new things, Tilly. Are you, uh, are you keen to try new things? Are you an experimental person or are you conservative with a small C? Uh, I think it depends, this one. Um, and I think it's it's really hard as you're getting older. And yeah. Not that on, either Tilly, you're still in your right. 20s. You're still in your 20s. Tw- <laughs> I'm 40 next year. You're still in your 20s. So let's let's not be getting out the violin for you right now, okay, mate? Calm, calm yourself down. I feel like an old soul, though. I think if um, I don't know if I believe in reincarnation or not, but if I am, I feel like I'm nearing the end. <laughs> I think that's probably why I'm a social worker. But um, do I keep trying new things? Less and less. And that's really embarrassing to say, isn't it? We all have our comfort zones and I'm very guilty of committing too much to work. Um, and not giving myself the space or the time to try other things um, and I'm, I'm an introverted person naturally and that might come as a surprise for, for some of our listeners the fact that we're on a podcast and we're putting ourselves out there but I have to make a real conscious effort to do things like this um, I would naturally just quite happily sit in my room and listen to music and watch the world go by um so yes i need to keep trying new things to make sure i don't regret it when i'm older do you want to try new things because it's all i look at this and i think well look some people are very happy and very content living their life in a certain way and you know i don't think anyone's expecting to go out there and start bungee jumping or paragliding unless it makes you happy so do you not try new things because you feel you haven't got the opportunity or because you feel you just don't want to do it which one is it because that 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 very much changes the context of this yeah i suppose it is more that i don't want to i'm quite happy happy in my own little bubble yeah I'll, i'll be happy and um plod on with what i'm doing because, Tilly, we covered this, you know, point two, the second regret of the dying is be honest about what you want. So be honest ah, about there. what you want. Here we go. I'm putting you on the spot, <laughs> Tilly. What do you want? Do you want to go out there, whitewater rafting, or do you want to sit at home listening to an audiobook, having a nice glass of wine in front of a log fire? Oh, definitely wine, audiobook and uh, staying at home white water rafting fills me with dread so there, yes there we go my friend. i feel like this is a therapy session um, do you I, know what it has it has been a while a since i've used my topic. It, it has been a while since i've used my uh, counseling techniques to be honest you know i trained as a counselor uh, two years ago i finished my uh, finished my qualification so we could do that we could call this we could call us the counselor's chair i'm not a trained counselor I've, I've got training counseling but i'm not formally registered counselor so yeah i'm social working you tonight tilly um next one our seventh regret of the dying is don't let other people's expectations govern you so this is kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier in terms of be honest what you want but this is more about specifically many dying people regretted that they lived their life based on the expectations of what other people thought they should do or what they believed other people thought they should do so particularly parents particularly 
children going into adulthood, living their life based on the expectations of their parents. It could potentially be peers. In the context of our lives, it could potentially be our employers or our social work regulators. Do you think people are often guilty of living their lives based on the expectations of others? I think they can be. Um, And again, I think this is something that we're seeing less and less of Mm. um, as people are celebrated for being individual in themselves these days, whereas perhaps going back a few generations, there wasn't that freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we are going to see people being more comfortable being themselves um, as, as we sort of move through the times. But yes, I think it's a common regret of of people um, who are dying. It's hard to live by others' expectations if that's not who you are. But it's equally hard to find out who you are. And I think, again, well, I don't want to dive too much onto social work theory about this, but if we look at child development and that adolescent stage where you're finding out your identity Mm. and you kind of are supposed to, by the time you get into early adulthood, you're supposed to know who you are. But I think that's wrong. You never stop learning about who you are. And we're so subjective to to change and influence about from those around us. I think we are always being moulded into something else. So uh, I, th- I think it's something, like I said, that we'll see less of as people uh, well as the, as the younger generations get older on the flip side do you not think that sometimes it can be motivational to live up to other people's expectations you know like be the person who your dog thinks you are <laughs> yeah i mean it can be i suppose it depends on who those expectations are mm. and why you want to live up to them if you're striving to improve yourself and make and and make yourself the best person that you can possibly be then that's okay if it comes from you it's when it comes from other people and that makes you miserable that's when it's not okay well said my friend the eighth more common regret of the dying is don't try and rewrite history So many people close to death regretted that they spent their lives or spent far too much of their lives trying to make up for mistakes of the past. Like I was discussing earlier, it could have potentially been parents who had a neglectful and abusive childhood and who lived their own life trying to atone for the sins of their own parents. It could be people who had been passed down some sort of message, a lost loved one in the family who was heralded. And you can quite often see that, you know, if an if a elder sibling potentially died relatively young, the parents can put unsufferable pressure on a surviving child and ask them to kind of be the person they were and put too much love and pressure on them. So m- many people in the latter stages of life or facing terminal illness, regretted that they spent far too much of their life trying to make up for what had happened in the past and rewrite history 
rather than simply letting go of that baggage and living life on their own terms. Does that chime with you, Tilly? Do you see any parallels in your personal professional life from that one? I do. And I think it's always important to remind people that we are a product of our histories mm. and our past traumas or events that have happened, things that have happened to us that contributes to making our characters and it makes people stronger most of the time when they come through it. So yes, I do think it 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 is evident. Well, it was clearly evident in the book. Do you see that in um in children's services? Pro- you probably see that more than I do, I think, with with people trying to make up for the cycles of parental abuse and, and break yes. free of that. What what I see a lot in social work is a, in my line of work is a massive fixation on the past that you know you, you can sometimes talk to you know, people that you're working with and every time you speak to them they'll bring up something that happened five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago or they'll bring up you know something that happened a couple of years ago or maybe more recently but the same discussion will be had time and time again you you try and politely move matters on and i quite often use the phrase you know we're not looking at the past we're looking towards the future and i think there can be this fixation on the past And, and i can see why because people are always trying to justify why they did the things they did or allowed the things they allowed to happen when those actions and inactions have resulted in social work involvement. The issue is, is is if you constantly live in the past like that, you never really move on. You can become re-traumatized by those events time and time again. And if 50% of your time with the people you're supporting in social work is spent with them going over the same stories and no resolution coming to it. It's not as if it's cathartic. It's not as if it's resulting in anything. It's just a focus on the past. It it really hamstrings you in terms of moving forward to the future. I'm sure you, you've seen that in child protection, but I imagine you, you see that in uh, adults as well, the sort of stuck record syndrome, looking at the past all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and when people are struggling with their memory it's normally the short-term memory that goes Mm. first and people regress into their past and the longer-term memories are the ones that stick so that is is a common theme but equally it's with working with older adults you're often just trying to get them through the day the week the month Um, there's less around that continuous improvement it's more about maintaining someone's quality of life so I think that's probably the difference whereas in children's services you're striving towards something whereas in adults we're more likely well older adults anyway you're more likely to be just trying to keep people as comfortable as they possibly can be yeah and then that and that that's the difference there the difference there is obviously uh, in in child protection social work, you're always looking towards a relatively short-lived goal. Um, years, you know, two years maximum would be the any the length of period anybody should really be involved in sort of frontline social work. Um, the ninth common regret is 
Make contentment your goal, not happiness. Far too many people, when asked what they wanted out of life, was just to be happy. And they didn't realize that true happiness is a relatively rare and fleeting thing that doesn't happen to us that often. Instead, what is achievable is being content. So many people regretted this constant pursuit of happiness instead of simply sitting back and realizing that life was okay and they could be content. This was probably, well, these last two, this and the next one, are probably the ones that struck with me the most. But before I discuss why, I'll come on to you, Tilly. Do you think that you're guilty of looking for happiness? Are you happy, <laughs> no pun intended, to simply be content? I mean, as you say, I, th- I agree with you. Um, this is probably one of the most powerful ones. Mm. And it, it really, oh, it, it hit home. <laughs> it's like mm. a stomach punch, isn't it? It's, I do get caught up in looking for happiness when actually I should be just focusing on being content with where I am. And I know certainly when I think about New Year's resolutions and what can I improve in my life, I'm looking at trying to practice gratitude and being grateful for what I've got, um, which is around contentment, not happiness. And I have interchanged the two. So I think the distinction that Georgina Skull has helped me realise will be hopefully very helpful moving forwards. Yeah, it really stuck with me, this one. Um, it stuck with me not so much because I'm guilty of this now, because I was certainly guilty of it in the past, because it's an easy thing to say, what do you want out of life? I just want to be happy. But when you think about true happiness, you know, jumping up in the air, woohoo, whooping, those are moments, those are small moments, you know. Mostly everybody's day-to-day life. You can't be happy all the time unless you're under the influence of something, which would, I imagine, be a regret for most people if they spent their life under the influence of something that was artificially making them happy. Whereas contentment is easy. And I, and I, and I would say, look, yeah, I'm happy in life, but it's easier to be content. You know, I'm content and that makes me happy, so to speak. And I think that really, that really struck a chord with me, that one, because it made me realise that, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. The only issue that I have with this, you've got to be careful about how settling for contentment can potentially impact on your drive and ambition because most ambition and most drive is born from a sense of not being happy with what you currently have and wanting more for yourself. So is there not, is there not kind of a balance here between not allowing yourself to get too content and settled, yet at the same time appreciating what you've got whilst also potentially striving for more? Do you think you can get that balance? I hope so. <laughs> I hope there's a balance yeah. there. Because, yeah. yeah, otherwise you slip into complacency, don't you? And that then leads to you being unhappy or, un- or uncontent. No, that's not a word. What's the word? In- I don't know. Discontented, isn't discontent. it? Discontent. Yeah, that sounds, I think that's right. We'll go with discontented. Um, yeah, you, you can't 
be too complacent otherwise you'd be static and stand still so you've got to strive a little bit but I suppose it's setting realistic goals isn't it and not thinking that you're gonna I don't know win the lottery and everything's gonna be roses it's actually I'm working in my career I'm making enough money to keep myself and my family happy and contented and wanting to just live a comfortable life and the last one talking about living a comfortable life the last regret of the dying is appreciate the everyday and the regret is that similar to what we were just talking about of contentedness a key regret of the dying is that they did not appreciate the everyday they did not appreciate how special it was just to be alive what a gift they had just to simply have the everyday whether this was people who were facing terminal illness and were no longer able to do the things they used to do or go to the places they used to go to or whether this was a regret of older people who just didn't really regret when they were 20 30 40 50 they didn't really sit back and appreciate just how lucky they were to be alive and their time was spent on petty worries and squabbles and falling out with people and living in the future and being dishonest and not not looking to change and trying to be in control and not admitting mistakes and failing to try new things and letting other people's expectations govern them. They spent far too much time fretting and worrying and being anxious and far little time just realising what a valuable gift life in itself is. But that's exhausting. And I think that you can get too caught up in cherishing the everyday sometimes to forget that actually it's incredibly human to have petty things go on and stresses and worries. And that's what makes life life. And I think sometimes, yes, we should be appreciating the everyday, but equally not treating every day like it's your last, because otherwise you're just going to burn yourself out. I think you can appreciate the everyday, but not live it like it's your last, can you not? Because, you know, you you can't go out there and live wild like it's your last day on earth every single day, because like you say, you would burn yourself out. But whenever you're faced with, petty issues or petty stresses you can sit back and think oh well this is nothing look how lucky I am and you know be mindful uh, and appreciate simply being on the wake-up list every morning yeah yeah you can do yeah so we're going to end this on a question Tilly I'll ask you this first if you had one year left to live what would you do with it I think this is an incredibly painful question um, because firstly, I would not want to know that I only had one year left. I don't want to know when I'm going to die. I want it to come as a surprise. I don't want to worry about it or feel like I'm counting down a clock because we're all counting down. We all know that death is a certain point of life. So If I had one year left to live, what would I do? I honestly don't know. Um, I'd I'd like to think that I would do a bit of travelling, spend time with my family, my friends, my horses. 
not work if I could help it or work as minimal amount as I can. Yeah, not sit there and worry about the fact that death is imminent because I really don't want to, to know. What about you? Throwing that question back at you. It's be very different, you know, now that I've got children. Um, I would uh, I would quit work immediately. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to you know, spend any 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 time doing anything else other than spending it with my own children and my own family and friends. That sounds selfish, but I'd have one year left to live, so I think I'd be right to be selfish because if 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 I died at work, my position would be filled within a matter of weeks. If I died in my family, my position would never be filled. So I, I would spend the entire time doing everything. I'd take my children to school every day. I'd make the packed lunches every day. I'd collect them from school every day. Every night I would spend and do the homework and we'd cook me. I mean, I do most of this anyway, to be honest. Um, but I, I would savour it all the more. Weekends would be spelled building memories. And then what I would do is I, I would spend as much time as I could in the free times recording the life lessons that my children would need in later life and writing letters to them future selves at certain years. So writing a letter to my son when he was 16, writing a letter to my daughter when she was 18, writing a letter to my to my daughter to open on a wedding day, writing a letter to my son to open on the day, you know, finishes secondary school and so on. So I would give as, as much of myself as I could now to their future lives, and I would build as many memories as I could now for them. And then in the hope that not only would the effort that I made over the next year contribute to their own future memories, but that the efforts that I made now in setting down my views and wishes and hopes for them and advice would see them through the difficult times to come when I was no longer there. That makes me want to cry, Vince. <laughs> you've, 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 oh, you've made me emotional. Um it's a hard-hitting podcast this week. It really is. We had a hard-hitting one last week, but this one equally. It's hard contemplating death. It's a really tough topic that people don't like to talk about. I differ there, Tilly. I differ. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it is. I, I used to find it. I used to find it incredibly hard. And I used to... And I, I thought my dad would live forever. And I said this, uh, I gave the eulogy at his funeral and and I expressed how I thought my dad would live forever. I thought he was eternal. He was this constant ever presence in my life. He seemed as eternal as the hills and the mountains and and the rivers and, 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 and the stone that built the town that I grew up in. And yet one day he was just gone and it, and it really shook. It really shook my confidence that if the one constant that had always been there for me and the one person that loved and cared for me and guided me above anybody else had gone, it, it really shook my foundations. Uh, it was difficult. It was really difficult. E- even the night I saw him before he died, I saw him about 
so about till about 9 p.m. on the evening. He, he died in the early hours of the next morning, just as, as the sun rose and at 7, 8 a.m. on the Sunday morning. Even the night before, I just I, my brain just couldn't compute the possibility. But, but now I, I'm able to look at this and I, and I find it life-affirming because by contemplating these things, I genuinely feel that it makes me a better person. It makes me a calmer person. It makes me a more settled person. And, and it makes me a better person. And this is the Buddhist philosophy, really. Uh, I've talked a bit about stoicism, but stoicism is yeah, really rooted in you know accepting that, you know, what you can and can't control, but the key, you know, the really the key foundation of Buddhism is kind of accepting that, that death will come and, and being okay with that. And and for me, I, I don't find it morbid, I don't find it upsetting, I don't find it macabre. Strangely, I find it comforting to reflect on these things because I wake up in the morning and, you know, I, every morning I, I arise and I think of what a privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy. And, and that's, I find it life-affirming. I find it comforting to consider these things and to remember just how lucky I am. See, I'm the opposite. I bury my head in the sand. I don't want to know. I don't want to think about it. It's um, It will happen one day and I appreciate that it will, but making the most of the here and now not and, and yet it. here i am here i am tilly i have my made you listen to this book on short notice you have <laughs> and i have subjected <laughs> you to a, a, an hour-long discussion on it so thank you thank you let's hope now that you don't start thinking too much about some of those regrets uh, let's hope that you don't try a new thing by giving up on the podcast. Let's hope that you think, well, I've let Vince's expectations govern me here. And uh, also, um, let's hope you're not too honest about what you want and tell me, well, Vince, after you've put me through that, I can't handle any more. I'm off. Oh, I've known you long enough, Vince, to know that I can I can handle a bit more than that. Don't you worry. Oh, I will be back stuff. on the podcast next week. But I would like to suggest a happier more uplifting topic we shall see Tilly I am okay in small doses so we shall see my friend okay we shall think of something a bit more positive for you okay even though I consider this positive we shall think of something that will tickle your fancy um as always guys thank you ever so much for tuning in this has been our fourth show and a drum roll please uh we are the number one social work podcast in the United Kingdom. So congratulations, Tilly. Well done. You've contributed to the most popular social work podcast in the whole of the UK. There's something positive to end on. That is. And right back at you. Oh, well, it's our listeners, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's not I'm me. Of <laughs> it is our listeners because it is you guys that listen to this, that tune in and give us the encouragement to keep going. So that is thanks to all of you guys. We will be back next Friday morning. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.